You are listening to the podcast of First Baptist Church of Sevierville, where our mission is helping people move from their point of need to hope in Christ. For more information about our church, head on over to severe.church. Today's sermon, Deconstructing Sin, is part two in the series, The Actors, shared by Senior Pastor Dan Spencer. I'm going to ask you to please find in your Bible the book of Psalms and go to Psalm 51, please. Psalm 51. We're going to be in this Psalm for the rest of the month, and I'm calling this series of sermons The Afters because of a word in the title of this Psalm. If you'll find that title at the beginning of the Psalm, it's normally in small letters in, uh, in all the versions of the Bible, and it comes right before verse 1. And here is what it says. It says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David. Now, that tells me that God gave King David the words that we read in Psalm 51. David wrote them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and out of his own personal experience. And it turns out that experience was the worst mistake that he ever made, uh, the, the most embarrassing, dark moment of his life. And David takes this to the chief musician, and he says, I want you to put music to these lyrics and get all the people to sing it when we gather for worship. Now, that's a little shocking when you think about the story behind the song. It would be like me writing a poem about the worst failure of my life and just putting it all out there and then giving that to Pastor Scott to to set music to it and lead us singing it on a Sunday morning. Uh, It is, uh, I don't know if I would have the guts to do that, Scott, but I'm glad that King David did it and I'll tell you why. Because although we have lost the tune, we have the lyrics, and we can read it, and it becomes for us a prayer that we can pray back to God. Uh, I'm glad David had the guts to do that, because this is a prayer that I've prayed from my own heart more times than I can count. When I have failed the Lord, when I have done something to dishonor his name, and I didn't know what to say. So many times I've just opened my Bible to Psalm 51, and I've read David's words as if they were my own. And uh, what we find here is really a model of how to approach the Lord and what to do about it after we sin. The, The rest of the title of the psalm says, this is a psalm of David Uh, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. After. That word after takes us back to a very sad story in David's life. We read this last week from 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And the story goes that it happened one night that David got up out of his bed And he went walking on the rooftop of the king's palace. And from his rooftop, he could see the neighbors and their homes and maybe their 
uh, courtyards and he looked and he saw a woman by the name of Bathsheba. The Bible says she was bathing and she was beautiful to look on. And David looked at her. He began to lust after her. He lingered there and then he lunged into sin. He called for her and brought her into his bed. He slept with her, although she was another man's wife. And then he sent her home when he got what he wanted. Sometime later, Bathsheba, this woman, contacted David and said, I'm with child. I'm going to have a baby. So David knows that he has been caught. And instead of running to the Lord, he develops this plan to cover up his sin so that no one will know about it. It involved uh, bringing Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, home from war to spend some time with his wife when that, uh, so that he could make it look like it was Uriah's baby. When that didn't work, he sent Uriah back to the battle with a kill order for Uriah's commander saying, put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle and then retreat and he'll be killed. And that's exactly what happened. And so David thinks at that point, Well, I'll just take her into my home. I'll look like the good guy. I'll raise this child. While others think that it's somebody else's child, I'll raise the child as if it were my own. And so David thinks he's gotten away with it. But shortly, God brought the prophet Nathan into David's courtroom to confront him with his sin. And Nathan says, David, you're the man. And David knows his sin has been exposed, that what others did not know, God knew all along. And so David finally says the first honest thing that he said since the whole thing started. This went on for the better part of a year. Finally, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And that statement led to David's prayer that we read in Psalm 51. So uh, Psalm 51 comes after all of that happened with Bathsheba, after David's sin. Uh, It's a big word, after. We know what to do with the befores, don't we? Like David, David could look back and say, I wish I had just stayed in bed. I wish that I had not looked a second time. I wish I had not gone through with it. We know what to do before To prevent sin, but what happens after? The afters of our lives. After we give in to temptation. After we fail. After we do the thing we promised God we would never do again. What do we do after? Psalm 51 is an honest prayer that becomes a model for what we ought to do after. And I'm talking about this all month long because I really believe that there are many people here at First Baptist Church that are one honest prayer away from revival and from seeing God do something new and fresh in their lives. Uh, It's about getting real about our sin. So uh, let's read it. Psalm 51. We're going to read down through verse 17. Here's David's prayer. He prays, have mercy upon me, O God, 
According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And then verse 10 is the most famous verse from this famous psalm. David prays, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. And then in verse 14, he comes back around to his sin again, saying, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Open, Lord, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not desire or delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. It's an honest prayer of confession of sin. And that leads to this question that we need to ask. Especially because there's so much confusion about it in our culture today. And that is, what exactly is a sin? What is a sin? And who, who gets to decide what is a sin and what is not? What is a sin? Thankfully, David uh, shows us throughout his prayer a really complete, in-depth understanding of what sin is. And he sort of in this prayer, deconstructs his own sin, uh, breaking it down into its component parts so that we can really understand it. And this is going to help us today to understand not only the sin of our own heart so that we recognize it and we're able to confess it and deal with it honestly, but also it's going to help us to understand what goes on around us in our world today and the power that sin has. Uh, so in verses 1 and 2, I'm glad David uses three different words in verses 1 and 2 to describe his sin. The first one is the word transgression. In verse 1, he, he begins the prayer by saying, blot out my transgressions. Transgression translates the Hebrew word pishah, and it means crossing the line. Crossing the line. It means to, to step over a boundary where you are out of bounds. It's a violation of the rules 
that God has given us to govern our lives. Now, if you've ever watched a football game, you understand what a boundary is. I'm one of about 14 people who watched a USFL game on TV yesterday. And if you've ever watched any kind of football game, uh, you know that there are boundary lines that define where the game is played. Without those boundary lines, like the sidelines and the end zone, football wouldn't be any fun at all. You wouldn't be able to know what's going on. If you could just run out through the parking lot and, and around the cars and through the a locker room, that wouldn't be any fun at all. It's only fun because the game is defined by the boundaries. If you step out of bounds, there's a penalty that you incur for that. You see this also in parenting, where you establish boundaries for your kids. And you say things like, do not leave your room. Do not walk across this threshold. Uh, we say to our kids, don't leave the yard. Not because we're mean parents, but because we're concerned about their safety. We want them to enjoy their playtime and not go out where they can get hurt. Don't leave the yard. Here's my favorite one. I used to say it to my boys all the time. Do not get on your other or on your brother's side of the car. Something bad happens every time you get on his side of the car. There are consequences to sin. When we step across the boundary. Now, God is the one who sets the boundaries for human behavior. And those boundaries defined in God's word do not change along with the culture. God's boundaries for our, uh, our activity, for our lifestyle, uh, have not changed since God put them in his word. And inside those boundaries that God has wisely and lovingly laid out for us, inside the boundaries, there's freedom and there's blessing. But outside those boundaries, what we find is judgment and death. And so this word transgression, if you transgress or violate, cross over those boundaries, that is a sin. Stepping across that line that God has set always promises freedom and happiness, but what we find out is what David learned, and that is across that boundary line that God has given us, we don't find freedom, we find pain and judgment. That is transgression. Now, why would David use that word to define what he did with Bathsheba? Well, it's because David knew that he had crossed that boundary line that God has set up for sexual fulfillment. God has given us boundaries for sex that he sanctions and that he blesses, and David violated that. David knew the law of Moses, that from the beginning in the book of Genesis, God has drawn this boundary line for sexual expression. And that is, God has made it clear that sex is for a man and a woman who are married to each other. And so you can sum it all up like this. This is God's boundary. If you write down the word husband and the word wife and draw a circle around it to, uh, to illustrate their marriage, God blesses sexual expression inside of that circle. And outside of that circle, God won't bless it. And it comes with consequences. Now, 
Besides that, David knew that what he did violated uh, the Ten Commandments. David would have been very familiar with the Ten Commandments that are outlined in Exodus chapter 20. And by my count, David broke five of them when he did what he did with Bathsheba. In the Tenth Commandment, God gives this boundary. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. But what did David do? He saw Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, who was a neighbor who lived so close, David could see into their yard from his rooftop. David knew she was married, but David lusted after her, and that desire crossed the line into sin. In the seventh commandment, God gives this boundary. He says, don't commit adultery. David crossed that line and slept with Uriah's wife. In the eighth commandment, God gives this boundary. Do not steal. But David crossed that line when he stole Bathsheba from her husband. In the sixth commandment, God gives this boundary. Do not murder. David crossed that line when he had Uriah killed to cover his own sin. And then in the ninth commandment, God gives this boundary. Do not lie. Don't make false statements. David crossed even that line when he lied and deceived others in order to cover up the sin that he had committed. Now, it sounds like I'm being really harsh on David, but really, we all know what that's like to step over the line. We've all done that. When we see the boundary and we know that This is a boundary that God has laid out for us, not because he's trying to uh, uh, inhibit our enjoyment of life, but we know that God has done this for our own good and for blessing so that we live a life of freedom and a life that honors him. And so we know that and we see that, but we cross the line anyway. And we all know what it's like to rationalize doing that And David says, this is sin. When we transgress God's boundaries. Uh, The the second word that David uses is found in verse 2. And it's the word iniquity. Iniquity translates the Hebrew word avon. uh, Which is, uh, it's a perversion of what God commands and what God blesses. It, it, It means to deviate from what God says is good and right. And God has the authority as our creator to outline what is good and right and what is not good and what is not right. And so iniquity is this word that David uses that means twisting God's beautiful plan for us into something that is ugly and selfish and evil. Now, that's iniquity. Why did David apply that word to what he did with Bathsheba? Well, because David knew the kind of life and the kind of behavior that God blesses. God wants and God expects us to deal with other people in the relationships of our lives. He expects us to deal with people in in, uh, ways that are pure and, and faithful and loyal and that honor Him. That's the picture that God gives us. Uh, for relationships, and he gives that to us in the way that he loves us, the way that he treats us. 
But when David saw Bathsheba and he decided, I want her, what David did is he took God's beautiful plan for marriage, for family, for fulfillment. And God took that and he twisted that design that God had given into something that was self-serving and evil and ugly and ultimately it was deadly. That's iniquity. And again, we're all capable of doing the same thing. We've all done it. When we, when we distort God's design and we try to achieve happiness and joy and freedom in ways that God will never bless, in ways that lead to emptiness and pain and evil things. That is iniquity. And then David adds a third word in verse 2, and it's simply the word sin. Sin, a little word in English, is a big word. In Hebrew, it's the word kata'ah. And it means a miss or a failure. Uh, it means we fail to measure up to God's standard for our lives. I, I always think about uh, what I heard my youth pastor, Brother Ralph, say uh, back in the 1900s when I was a teenager. Uh, he used this illustration. He said, what if we all go to Myrtle Beach and we line up there on the beach right at the water's edge and, and what if we say, uh, this is a contest. We're all going to jump to England. Just jump over the whole ocean to England. Uh, and we all line up and we take turns. We get a running start. We jump one by one. Uh, some, one person may only be able to clear a couple of feet of the water. Others may jump farther. Somebody might even break the world record of 29 feet, four and a half inches. But in the end, nobody can cover the distance. Everybody falls short. That's why the Bible says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody measures up. Nobody can cover that ground that God has given us that he wants us to live in, in, in holiness and, and by God's standard. So why did David apply that term to miss, to fail that word sin, why did he apply that to what he did? Well, because David knew, I have failed to be the upright, God-honoring man that God has called me to be. I missed it. I, I totally blew it when I chose this night of pleasure and then covered it up instead of being faithful to God. I have failed to live according to God's word and God's standard for my life. And, and again, we can all relate to that. None of us measures up. We're all sinners. And all sin and all iniquity, all transgression has negative effects on us. David explains it for us when he talks about throughout this prayer the effects of sin. Uh, and I just want to mention three of them. The first is dirtiness. David said, here's what sin has done to me. It's made me feel like I am dirty. And what's more, 
I don't just feel that. I am that in my soul. I am dirty because of my sin. In verse 2, David prayed, Lord, wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. In verse 7, he says, purge me. I want to be clean. Wash me and make me whiter than snow. Because David had this sense of the dirtiness that sin had brought into his life. And, and, and in, this, in this psalm, he's, he's just obsessed with it. I've got to get rid of this stain that sin has put on my life. I imagine King David there in his immaculate palace after the affair with Bathsheba. He bathes with the finest soap money can buy. He, he, he soaks in the best imported bath oils, but he still feels dirty. He, he puts on his carefully laundered royal PJs and slips between the clean sheets of his luxurious bed, but he is still dirty. Now, why is that? Because sin corrupts what God has created us to be. And it leaves us with a stain that only he can wash out. And David was keenly aware of that. And so he cried out over and over, God, wash me. God, purge me. God, cleanse me. God, make me whiter than snow. And so sin had this effect of of dirtiness in David's life. But another thing he mentions is his brokenness because of sin. Brokenness. David feels the damage that sin has done to his soul deep down inside of him. So in verse 8, he, he says, it feels, Lord, like, like I've got a broken bone that's not been set. In verse 17, he talks about how the guilt of his sin has broken his spirit and broken his heart. He has this sense of dirtiness and brokenness. And then the third thing is guiltiness. In verse 14, David prays, Lord, deliver me from this guilt. The guilt of sin has begun to weigh heavy on David. It's all he can think about. And according to the backstory in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, David carries that load of guilt around with him for almost a year. Imagine that. Everything he does that year, he's, whether it's governing the nation or or singing a song of worship even. It's all under this load of guilt that he was never meant to carry. And the whole time he's feeling the effects of his sin, the dirtiness, the brokenness, the guiltiness. And Psalm 51 is David's prayer about that. Sin had made him dirty and he cries out to God, please make me clean. The guilt had broken him and he cries out to God, heal me, fix this. What sin is broken, God, I need you to step in and fix it. And so David, in this prayer, he just pours out his confession and his repentance. And and we're going to really dive into that next Sunday. But did you notice how David started his prayer in verses 1 and 2? Let's look back at verses 1 and 2 at how David how David begins this prayer. He begins by saying, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, 
Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Uh, David begins this prayer by just stating this fact that I know that my God is a God of mercy. He's a God of love. He's a God of great grace. And so uh, from those two verses, and I just want to close with this as we lead into the time of observing the Lord's Supper together today. Uh, and, And that is two things to remember after you sin. All right? Here are a couple of things to remember after you sin. Uh, The first one is this, that God has not stopped loving you. Remember after you sin, God has not stopped loving you. I, I, I just like the fact that David, right out of the gate, states this. God, I know you're a God of mercy. And you're a God of of tender love toward me. And I I know that what I've done is awful. But but Lord, my sin is great, but your love is greater. Uh, My sins are big. Your love is bigger. And I know that you still love me. Somebody here today needs to hear this. That no matter what you've done... God loves you. And no matter what's been done to you, God loves you. God hasn't given up on you. God still has plans for you. There's still a place for you in His family. And you can be confident of that. I love the fact that while David is so contrite and penitent, And sorrowful over his sin. At the same time, he's confident. Now, if you're not confident that God still loves you, then here's what you will do. You'll try to fake that everything is okay. This is what David did for the better part of a year. You'll just fake that everything's all right. And you'll make excuses for what you've done in your own heart. Uh, You'll rationalize it, justify it, compare yourself to other people who are worse sinners than you are. And and if if you're not confident that God loves you, then you'll begin to think, hey, my salvation, God's love for me, it's based on my goodness and my performance. And that always comes up short. But here's what happens. If you, like David, if you're confident of God's love, then what happens is you can be honest about your sin. And you'll find that you don't run from God when you do something uh, sinful, but you run to Him. And that confidence that God loves me anyway, and that's not going to change, that, that leaves you in a place where you can be honest, you can confess that with the security that God's love is not going to change, and, and without the fear that He's going to withhold His love if you do something wrong. So please remember, after you sin. That God still loves you. And then uh, the second thing is this. Remember that God has made a way for you to be forgiven. David is confident in that, isn't he? In verses 1 and 2. He just begins by saying, Lord, because of your great love, I know I can come to you and ask this. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. 
David knew that forgiveness was possible because God had provided a way for that to happen. In His grace, God provided a way. Now, on this side of the cross, we know what David didn't know yet. And that is that in the fullness of time, Jesus would come and Jesus would go to the cross. And although he was pure and innocent and sinless, Jesus would take on the the guilt of all of our sin. He took responsibility for all that we've done. And he went to the cross and he paid the ultimate penalty for our sin. And that is, he died. He was buried. On the third day, he rose from the dead to offer salvation and forgiveness to everyone who will repent and believe. And so, I want you to be sure today that God has provided a way for you to be forgiven. And if you've never come to him for salvation, based on what we're about to symbolize, that Jesus gave his body as a sacrifice for our sins. We symbolize that with the bread that we're going to pass around. He shed his blood on the cross to cover our sins and to pay the price for us. We symbolize that with the cup that we're going to drink together. You can be sure God has provided a way for you to be forgiven. If you've already come to Jesus for salvation, you know you need this too. I I can't tell you how many times I've had to open my Bible to Psalm 51, pray that prayer to the Lord. Lord, I have blown it. Lord, I said this, I did that, I failed to do this. I fall short so often. And yet I know you still love me and that you've made a way for me to be clean and forgiven. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, Our deacons who are going to serve the Lord's Supper today are going to come and take their place. Uh, I'm going to begin to pray And uh, the Bible says that before we do this, we ought to examine our own hearts. And so I want to ask you uh, to, uh, in prayer, ask the Lord to search your heart. I'm going to do the same. And ask the Lord if there's any transgression, if there's any iniquity, if there's any sin. I want you to expose it so I can confess it. And here's the promise we have. 1 John 1, 9 in the Bible says this. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have his word on it. And so let's take a few moments to reflect and and to pray as our deacons come to serve us. All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would search our hearts just now. We want to be clean before you. And we pray like David. Lord, you are a God of love and mercy. And we come to you on those grounds. We can't come to you based on our record. We can't come to you based on titles or position or net worth 
Lord, all we have is your love and what you provided the way you've given us to come to you and to be forgiven. So we ask you to search us. Do that work in Jesus' name. Let's just pray for a moment.